Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. You know, we hear a lot today about the younger generation, especially millennials, exiting the church and even their faith. What we don't seem to hear a lot about are millennials whose faith has died or come to a point of collapse, but then go on to rediscover a deeper and more meaningful faith, which at first glance seems to be at the edges of orthodox belief. But based on the record-setting number of downloads from the first part of my conversation, it would seem that people are really hungry to hear stories of collapsed faith that then get rebuilt. It would seem that people are wondering if you can ever come back from that and how you actually rebuild. So my guest today is a former Bible college spiritual zealot who, in part one, described that very thing, his spiritual and emotional collapse when what he knew about God intellectually couldn't touch the brokenness and addiction that was part of his life. So I'm so excited to continue my conversation with Tony Anderson, who creates and composes music for television, film, and beyond. His musical work has been featured on promotions for National Geographic, GoPro, Delta, and ESPN. And as you will hear in this interview, his music is having a significant impact on people throughout the Middle East. In addition to composing, Tony is the executive producer of the soon-to-be-released film The Heart of Man, and it will be playing in theaters around the country about a week from now, on September 14th. To find out more about The Heart of Man film, visit heartofmanmovie.com, and to buy tickets, you can go to fathomevents.com. You will not want to miss this powerful film And it is playing at 7 p.m. in every time zone on September 14th. In this episode, Tony and I dig deeper into how he got his heart and life back after years of addiction to both porn and performance-based Christianity. We also talk today about how he struggles with addiction to noise and performance, something which I'm absolutely certain none of us can relate to, right? Tony Anderson, welcome back to Restoring the Soul, part two. Oh, thank you for having me back. Michael John Cusick, author 
what a great conversation we had for part one. It was just fun. I had a blast, man. I was excited that we got to dig into some of the tangential stories and details surrounding union. Uh, I hope we get to dig in to that more. But one of the things you didn't didn't fully explain to people was me jumping off of a roof into a vat of jello. And I was hoping that you might share at some point, it doesn't have to be in this episode, maybe a future episode, what actually happened and what led to that. There are people right now listening going, I have no idea what I just stumbled into and what they're talking about. So shifting gears, but I, but I love this hypothetical world that we live in. Shifting gears, a big part of that conversation where I stated that I was going to jump off a roof into a vat of jello was about your, your collapse. You put words to that um, about what it was like for you spiritually. But I sense that there's a lot of people out there that have, that have experienced uh, something like that, some kind of falling away or falling down. And what was that like for you emotionally and relationally and just on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis when everything collapsed? Well, it has been very costly. It's been very nonlinear. It's caused a lot of fallout relationally. So this has not been a clean process. And it has affected and rearranged my internal world. But it's also caused a lot of pain and a lot of relational devastation. And I want to be sensitive to that. Um, Because a lot of this happened in in the uh, place I now live. And it is very difficult to change and have something transformed where you live. This process started about eight years ago when I recognized I was at least two different people, maybe more, but at least two. And it was a result of graduating from a uh, Christian college where one of the people living inside of me was one who wanted to go out and change the world for God, change the world through the gospel, plant churches, influence people, tell them what's right, basically by telling them that they're wrong and then offering them the truth and inviting them into some sort of Christian community. And then there was another part of me that was very much alive, and it felt even more alive than the other person in me. And that part of me uh, deeply loved pornography. I I think I had about a 15-year neurological addiction to porn, and I treat that more biologically than I do spiritually. And there were maybe 10 years of that stretch where I used pornography at least once a day. And that was through Bible college. That was even afterward. All of my relationships with females were promiscuous. They ended in disaster. I could not hold a long-term relationship at all. And when it came to even my closest male relationships, I couldn't keep anything long-term going. And I would shut down and withdraw. And I couldn't hold the two together. Literally, I could not hold these two opposite people in me together because they seemed in opposition. One wanted really bad things. One wanted seemingly good things. And I had pretty much consigned to the fact that I was just going to be one of these guys that probably would find himself in some sort of pastoral ministry or Christian ministry or something religious. And my life would probably blow up and I'd be a headline like a lot of my buddies right now in in the church who are getting exposed for a double life or a triple life or a quadruple life. I mean, every week, every week I'm finding out about another peer of mine who's getting exposed. So I had consigned that that's probably just going to be me. This is the way it's going to be. And what was interesting, I don't know why I did this, but instead of just trying to fix my behavior, I kind of just gave into it. And I was as honest as I could be at the time. And one of the things I had to be honest about was my behavior, the bad behavior, if we want to classify it that way, 
felt more real and more powerful than anything I had with God. And so I kind of uh, spoke to God. I said, look, if, if this stuff is true that you're out there or, or in me, whatever I've been repeating, whatever BS I've been spouting for years, if, if that's actually true, I need to be honest with you in telling you the, at minimum, I like porn more than I like you. I remember telling God, you feel distant. You feel vindictive. I feel like you're angry with me. I feel like you're angry when I don't perform well. I don't understand you. I don't know why my life is so non-compelling. I don't know why I'm going around repeating an intellectual message of salvation to my buddies and none of them are buying it. I don't know why I'm at church. I don't know why we sing early on Sunday. I was just that honest. And I decided that if there was something real with him, that I did want it, but that he was going to have to rebuild it out of the ashes and that I was not going to withhold honesty in the process, that I didn't want him to withhold honesty in the process. And this is, I think, maybe the most important thing that I would have told God around that time is that if this exists with you, if reality exists with you, if something enjoyable and real exists with you, I will pay whatever cost is necessary to get it. And I would say that's the beginning of when things started getting painful because God did answer me, not in a linear way, but he spoke to me. um, It started in 2011 or 2012. And he started speaking to me in a language that my soul understood. And a lot of us have a language uh, that's either visual or, or verbal or creative or artistic that we hear from God in. And so for me, it was dreams. It was visions. It, uh, it was out-of-body experiences that I could not quantify uh, that felt a little odd that to this day continue to offend me. And I experienced a level of love and honesty from him, almost like Jesus was saying, hey, thank you for being honest. I've been excited for this day where you would be this blunt with me. Let me share a few things with you, too. That sort of uh, dialogue started happening. And as a result, everything in my life started shifting. And what I came to realize is that when I would open up about the things that I had been uh, believing about God that just really weren't true, weren't grounded in any sort of real joy, and definitely didn't reflect my desires. There was a whole sea of men and women uh, who were also there. And it's almost like all of us needed someone to just step one foot out into the battlefield. That may not be the right image uh, for the rest of us to kind of come out and say, yeah, I, I kind of hate what I've got with God too. And, uh, and I don't know why I have seemingly two or three additional people living inside of me who all want different things. So it's messy. Uh, I would say the number one word I would use to describe my collapse is messy because these are people in my community. Probably some of them are are listening to this right now who invited me into their homes, invited me to the great bluegrass state of Kentucky, uh, opened up their families to me. And so I started getting questions around that time like, man, Tony, why are you so angry? You know, where'd the cynicism, where'd the the critical nature and the judgment come from? Why, Why did you tweet that? You know, seems like you're drinking a lot of wine. You're posting a lot of wine on social media. What's what's that all about? You need someone to talk to? You know, those are the reactions I got because they couldn't understand why my life seemingly, for no physical reason, was being turned upside down. And so the most honest I could be was to say, I don't know what's happening inside of me, but I do know this. It is real and it is painful. And right now it feels a lot easier to cope with the pain than it is to face the pain. And you said so many things there that that I would want to unpack, but what I'm hearing the strongest is 
um, that you gave up trying to fix it and you gave up trying to get more of God by doing more Christian things so that you could somehow become one person. Um, that brutal honesty with God really feels um, very, very powerful, what you did. A lot of what I operated out of with God for most of my life uh, is fear and performance. And I, I continue to struggle with that on a daily basis. And I had to acknowledge the reason I was a part of uh, Bible studies and men's Christian groups and waking up at the ungodly hour of five in the morning to go meet uh, a group of people at Starbucks. But uh, I had to acknowledge, like, look, I'm only doing this stuff because I'm afraid. And I don't walk out a lot of these interactions with God and with, with people that follow God uh, happier about my life. I usually walk out critiquing my own life, uh, pretty pissed off at myself for my bad behavior. And I look at all my buddies who are Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, and I'm like, man, these guys are not beating themselves up for looking at porn. How is it that seemingly they're more carefree and checked in than I am? So fear and performance drove the majority of my life. And as that is starting to be provoked and poked on, man, not only is that painful, I'm having exposed to me that those are the two engines that have run a lot of my behavior and faith journey up until recently, very recently. I love how you said um, that porn and your other, quote, bad behaviors felt more powerful um, than God. Um, I talk about the question in Surfing for God, and this is a big theme of the new book that I'm working on, of that, that we all have to get to an honest place with pornography or sexual promiscuity or any addiction, actually, to be able to ask the question, what is better than porn? Or what is better than smoking weed all day, every day? What, what is better than buying more stuff that I don't need? And the Sunday school answer for that is Jesus, right? We all know the, the answer is Jesus, but that we don't live the question. And it sounds like you came to a point where you really said, I'm going to need you to answer this question. I need to enter into this question or else I, I, I can't keep going this way. I had a, uh, this is going to sound very charismatic. So one of the ways I communicate with God uh, is in a very uh, vision-esque realm. And, and it happens a lot in dreams as well. So a lot of this happens in the contemplative silence place. Uh, sometimes it happens in a moment of prayer where I'm not really speaking. Usually happens out of silence or inactivity. Okay, so uh, one night I'm in this uh, ring of fire and I can't get out of the ring because there's, you know, fire everywhere. In the center of this ring is, is Jesus. And he's not a man in this case. He is a beam of fire. He's kind of a pillar of fire. And I remember trying to get away from him. I mean, I'm scared to death of this guy. And I'm trying to leave. And uh, he said to me in, in a normal tone of voice, until you can face me and tell me that you don't trust me, we can't move forward. Now, wow. I'm not going to get into whether or not that's theologically like – so first of all, it's not in the Bible. So anyone who's, uh, who's frustrated that I said that, you're not going to find it in the Bible. And, and I said, okay, I don't know how to be honest with you. I don't know how to be honest with myself, but I want this. And one of the first things I told him is that I enjoy my sexual addiction more than I enjoy you. And he said, thank you. And that was the end of that one. It's one of the most transformational things I've ever had happen in my life. 
And uh, a lot of my friends close to me discredited it immediately because, of course, it's not in the Bible. And I'm like, guys, the Bible is a record of humans' experience with God, especially God as a human. And all of a sudden, experience is supposed to end after the Bible's done being written. I don't buy it. So uh, with, with wisdom, I want to look at that experience and go, that is God coming near to me in the pit of my addiction saying, I need you to be honest with me so that we can move forward. That blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And it gave me license to start being brutally honest with him. Well, it reminds me so much of, um, in my marriage, how many times my wife has said, I think you're angry at me. And I, I go, I'm not angry at you. I'm not angry at you because I'm not a rager. You know, I stew and I get grumpy and irritable. And then finally, I'll, I'll confess, you know, I'm really pissed at you. And she'll go, thank you. You know, and <laughs> And at, yeah. that, at that point, we can really be intimate. It's like she knows my heart. But my fear, just like your fear with Jesus, is that if I, if I really share my heart, then I'm screwed. Absolutely. And I mean, part of me goes, man, what if evangelical Christians are the largest unreached people group by Jesus? Not because we don't have information about God, but simply because we have refused to enter the threshold of honesty. Right. Like I, I actually joked with one of my buddies. I was like, we should start a fake worship band where halfway through the song, the worship leader gets confused about all of these concepts that he's thinking about and realizing they all cancel each other out. And he just decides to get vulnerable and falls apart halfway through the song. And then it just turns into an instrumental. I'm like, man, that would be church every Sunday if we were all honest. Everyone would be fired and uh, everything would start to get amazing at that point, because our vulnerability, this is kind of what I'm learning, our vulnerability and our oneness with God, I think, is what we have to give away to the world. Um, we don't have an intellectual message. We have union. So this is one of the other things that screwed me up that is scriptural, came from Jesus, where he's near the end of his, his life on earth. And he's talking to his father uh, before he dies. And he says, Father, I want them to be one the way that you and I are one. I and them, they and us us and you, he's, he's, he's going through these images saying, I want them to be inside of me the way that I'm inside of you. It is so blunt and visible to me that he wants us to have with the father what he had with the father. And this is what he says after that. He says, the world will know that you sent me because they are one, because they're unified. And usually that's taught as like, okay, well, we all need to hold hands, sing Kumbaya, and he's saying, no, it's, it's by the essence of their union with you, Father, that they'll know that they, the world, will know that you sent me. So the union is what we operate out of. Now, I don't claim to understand what that means or that I've entered into it, but I do know this. I've spent most of my life living in the doorway of my intellect, repeating a intellectual, rational, repetitious message of justification through the cross, and I have not risked the majority of my life, the actual cost it takes to step through the doorway into oneness with Jesus. And that requires brutal vulnerability and honesty. And those are things I'm learning to start possessing. But man, is that painful. And man, is that different? Is that so different? Come on, right? Like it's so different from what a lot of us grew up with. Yeah, because to get to that place of union, it's not something that we need to work up. It's not something that we need to attain uh, but it's something that we can only fall into. And my experience has been through through my story of addiction and failure and um, hitting a brick wall through trauma recovery. 
that um, until we come to the end of ourselves, uh, we really don't trust that union because we're always striving and trying to work to create that sense of connection to God when it's already there. Man, thank you for saying that. That is uh, something to chew on. So union is not something I go out and get. It's something I possess already, right? So this is this is uh, what blows my mind. Paul, 2 Corinthians, he's talking to them in his letter, and he's saying, this is your job. You go tell people they've been reconciled, that God's not holding their sin against them. So I go, okay, well, if we don't have that card to hold against the world to tell them that they're just a bunch of sinners who are you know, doomed to hell, but if the card we actually have to play is, hey, God's already reconciled you. He's calling you into something. Well, what is the something? Why are we explaining to people that God's leveled the playing field for them? Is there something good to step into? I don't know. And if it is truly, if union, let's just say union is the something that we're stepping into, if that's something that I possess and, and it's unexplored territory, it means the greatest unexplored territory in the universe is actually inside of me. And for most of us, that might be true, that we have not started the journey inward. And I think what we might find, this is what I'm finding, I don't know about you, is that God's already in there. Like God is in me. And he's working in my wounds. He's working in my addiction. He's working in my shame. He's working in the areas that I'm afraid to go to. And he's calling me into those places. So he's not external. This is something I'm starting to process more. And it really shows up when I pray these dumb, religious, programmatic, robotic prayers. God's not out there somewhere. Like I don't have to conjure his presence to get close to me by doing a certain amount of miracles or looking at a certain amount of porn that's a certain percentage lower than, you know, last year or whatever. He's in me. And if there's this inseparable, indestructible union happening inside of me that I have no control over, I'm like, man, why are we not talking about this? This is crazy. This is huge. And if it's something that Jesus says, the world will know that I am who I am because you possess this thing. I'm like, man, this is unexplored territory for me. This is why it caused a collapse in me. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. And it reminds me of a quote that I I think I've shared with you before from one of my favorite authors, Martin Laird, in his book, Into the Silent Land. He says that most of us are like a person fishing for minnows while standing on the back of a whale. And this concept, you know, you quoted 2 Corinthians 5, and there's so much of this concept of union with God all throughout Scripture. And I think one of the richest is in John 15, where we, we hear from Jesus the whole image of the vine and the branch, that apart from the branch, which is us being connected to the vine, there's no life. And not just in terms of producing fruit, because that's the outcome, but just in terms of existence. Life, with a capital L, is from that connection and that that union. And um, it's just a very, very scriptural idea. And, And my default setting is Christianity is believing all these things, and then acting a certain way as opposed to there's this dynamic presence, this indwelling that uh, the, the great physician and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said that it's out of the indwelling union and presence of Christ out of which all healing and wholeness comes. So it's a, it's a very, very rich idea that uh, I want to just keep dedicating conversations on this podcast to helping people to explore and understand I love this because it, it does change everything. And I love what you brought up because it's simple and agricultural. 
And um, my wife, Brookie, love her. Uh, we love cooking. We love traveling. We love being old people and going to really small villages in France. And a lot of those villages have vines surrounding them. And I had never seen a vine before. Okay, I had read John 15 before, but I'd never actually seen an actual vine. And those things are gnarly, man. Some of them, uh, some of them are about as big around as your thigh, and and they're ugly looking. And they dig into the ground. Some of them for you know 30, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 feet down in, into the soil. And the vine is actually not what you pull grapes off of. And of course, there are these little tendrils and shoots and grafts and you know branches that come off of them that of course hold the grapes. But when you look at them, they're not just kind of barely attached to the vine. They're deeply grafted in. They're not going to fall off. And actually what I saw the farmers doing is they're going around pruning and cutting the vines that are incredibly fruitful to make way for them to become even more fruitful. The, 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 the effort of that gardener is to try to get the thing to produce fruit. They're not worried about branches falling off. And the way I always heard John 15 is, hey, if you keep looking at porn and masturbating, God's going to cut you off from the vine because you're barely hanging on by a thread right now. And what I didn't know is if I would have just walked through a vineyard, I would have understood this is the vine is a good gift. It's from God. And I don't have to worry about falling off. I actually don't even have to worry about fruit. I get to just be connected to the vine. And he's the one who's going down and getting this deep, nutrient-rich content from the soil pushing through to places, working, going around rocks and rubble and limestone and slate to get to the water source. And I'm with him in that. I'm receiving the benefit of that. I had no idea that I was just with Jesus. I had no idea that I was just in Jesus and that this irreversible truth is going to change me whether or not I agree with it. Uh, I think I can cooperate with it and not cooperate with it. But yeah, union, union, stepping into union without having to perform for it. That is mind-altering, and it's a new concept for me. And it's something that's so freeing, and I'm 53 years old and was first introduced to this concept almost 25 years ago, and it's something that there's no point of arrival, there's no destination for this. Uh, It's a way of being that becomes more and more a part of me, and sometimes I'm utterly aware of it and feel very connected to God and I'm able to practice his presence. And there's other times where for a variety of reasons, uh, I'm utterly unaware of union with God. And yet the reality is, is that he's still present. He's still indwelling. uh, He's still working. He's still very much fond and affectionate of me and of all of his children. So it's something that, again, I I, I feel very passionate about helping um, people to understand this reality. Tony, before we run out of time, um, I want to come back to uh, the Heart of Man movie, which we explored in depth in part one. And uh, it's coming out in theaters in a week, September 14th, 700 plus theaters around the country, 7 p.m. in every time zone fathomevents.com for tickets, heartofmanmovie.com for more information for the trailer. But what are you hoping for as this movie um, goes out to people all across the states and then worldwide? I'm hoping that the religious veil over the American church gets pierced with intimacy. Uh, This film is designed to sneak in the back door 
through the parable of the prodigal son. That's what the film is. It's just a retelling of the prodigal son story. And it's designed to plant the thought in your mind and in your heart and in every part of you that God is a good father. So uh, Jason Pamer and Jens Jacob are our producers who have absolutely crushed every barrier and roadblock for this film to be able to get into theaters. It's a one night only event. Um, that's where we're starting theatrically, uh, September 14th, one night. And then we're hoping to roll it out digitally throughout the fall and quarter one of 2018 and do a limited, uh, uh, kind of church tour. So I'm hoping what it inspires in people is to get connected to their own story, to understand the voice of shame in their life and the lies that shame has been telling all of us our entire lives and to enter into union, this great mystery that frankly, I'm with you. I, I think I'm probably on the end of it where 90% of my day, I'm not really aware of or complicit with this union that's alive in me. I still have yet to wake up to it. So from one sleeper to a generation and a country of sleepers, I'm hoping we all get woken up. Well, I'm hoping for that too. And um, I'm really, really thankful for your role in this. And you did a shout out to your team members. I had a chance to meet Jason Pamer and Jens Jacob um, at Willow Creek Church when you uh, gave my wife Julianne and I the privilege of watching some of that filming and being involved in that. And I'm so excited for the finished product. And thank you to those guys. Thank you to you. And I'm eager to see uh, what God does with this, um, this retelling in this very contemporary way of the prodigal son and the prodigal father story. So thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 